0: Well, welcome everybody. Uh, once again, the kids are gone and there's five people here uh, every time. Uh, we'll give them a moment for the moms to come back to, to even it out a little bit more. Um, but uh, we just want to welcome you guys to City on a Hill. Uh, thank you for for being a part of a fellowship today and and studying God's Word together. It's always a blessing uh, to be uh, just a part of the community and body of Christ and to come together studying His Word and worshiping Him uh, just corporately. It's such a it's such a wonderful thing and a blessing that we have, uh, especially here in America where freedom to do so is still prevalent. So. Uh, Welcome everybody. Uh, We are uh, actually in a Christmas series right now. We've been going through the Minor Prophets. That's going to be a long time as we're going through that, so we're taking little intervals in between, some breaks, uh, through studying uh, the Minor Prophets to um, this time to take a moment to look at uh, the Christmas story. Uh, often you know we have our Christmas uh, celebration on Christmas Eve but I feel like the Christmas story uh, deserves so much more than just a, just a 20 minute message uh, so we're going to study through uh, the next three uh, lessons will be a part of this series called the light has come uh, and we're going to look at Jesus through the lens of John chapter 1 primarily so we're going to conclude the series on the Christmas Eve service uh, and the introduction in the book of John uh, is very unique and as we saw last week it reveals Jesus as deity, as God Himself. In verse one, John calls Jesus the Word. In Greek, it was uh, it was called Logos. That's the word that they use. And in the and to the Greeks, they believe that the power that set the world in motion and the thinker behind the thought, the creator behind the creation, was this logos. Uh, And while the Greeks were pantheistic in nature, uh, they didn't believe in the God of Israel, they believed in the logos. And so John essentially is saying to the Greeks here that, hey, if you want to know the thinker behind the thought, the creator behind the creation, look no farther than God himself or Jesus himself. And to the Jews, this phrase, the word, to them was synonymous to God. And so John's opening is very unique in the sense that it speaks both to the Greek as well as to the Jew. if you look at the other gospel messages typically they were focused in on a particular group of people Matthew to the Jews uh, I think. believe Mark was to the uh, Romans and Luke was to the Greek uh, but you see in the book of John he speaks to everybody around the world and so uh, just the very opening itself that Jesus being the word is clear to Greeks and Jews alike that he means Jesus is God And then we see in verse 3 that John clearly states that Jesus is also the creator of all things. So Jesus, we are also told, is the life. And this word, again, life, does not come from the Greek word bios, which, you know, we get our word biology from. It's not speaking in a physical sense. It comes from the Greek word zoe. It's reference to the spiritual life. And so Jesus is the life, and in him we have life, Scripture tells us that apart from Christ we are dead in our trespasses, but in Him we have, uh, we find everlasting and abundant life. And then last week we we kind of concluded with Jesus, with seeing that Jesus is the light, which we will take a little closer look this morning. Uh, before we dig in, we're going to be in John chapter one. I'll give you guys a moment to turn there, and I want to just open up with a word of prayer before we dig into God's word. Dear Heavenly Father, again, we just ask that you would be with us today. We ask that you would reveal yourself through your word in equal parts truth and love. Lord, I just pray that we would find encouragement this morning in your word and just be reminded of your tender mercy and infinite love for us. In your name we pray. Amen. So John chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. Uh, last week we concluded in verse 5, and in, so in between verses 5 and, and 9, uh, there's a little introduction into John the Baptist, and it, uh, John, the, the writer John, not John the Baptist, explains that this man is not the Messiah, but he's one that comes uh, before the Messiah. and In fact, he calls him a herald, as it were, uh, to Jesus himself. Now verse 9 is a continuation of the description and depiction of Jesus Christ. Uh, And so while all of scripture really essentially is only scratching the surface of the fullness of Jesus revealed, John does go a little bit deeper in verses 9 through 13. If you look back to verse 4 in chapter 1, he says that in him was life and the life was the light of men. In verse 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The depiction of Jesus as light is not just specific to John chapter 1. It's found all throughout scripture. Jesus, in fact, says it of himself uh, eight chapters later. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The modern definition to the word light is the natural agent that stimulates sight and makes things visible. In other words, light is revealing in nature. It overcomes darkness, and it tells us that darkness will not overcome it. In fact, it cannot overcome light. But why was it necessary for this true light to come into the world? In fact, this light was also the creator of the very world that he came into. But what is the purpose of this? And so to answer that... I want us to turn to the book of Isaiah for a bit today. So if you have a, like a bookmark, you can put it in, in John chapter 1 or just hold it with your finger. I'd really like you guys to turn to Isaiah chapter 53 because we're going to be in here probably half the time this morning as well. Isaiah chapter 53, we're going to look at verses 1 through 11. This is perhaps one of the most powerful chapters, prophetically speaking, concerning Jesus Christ. It's important to understand that Isaiah 53 is all about Jesus. And I say it's important to understand this because there are some who have wrongly interpreted Isaiah 53 uh, to be a prophecy about the nation of Israel. But that is not true, okay? So we're speaking, everything we read here is speaking entirely about Jesus as the Messiah and not the nation of Israel. So Isaiah chapter 53, beginning in uh, verse 1. He is oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off and out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and the rich man in his, health, in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. prophecy especially when you gather that it was written some 700 years before the coming of Jesus Christ uh, but it's also a very um, powerful message you see the sacrifice that was given by Jesus Christ for each and every one of us so I want to look back to verse 2 as we begin to study through uh, Isaiah chapter 53. It says of Jesus that he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. So first off, we see that Jesus came from very humble beginnings uh, of a very humble birth. Essentially, he was born of a peasant woman in Mary. And his earthly father was a carpenter, perhaps it's better translated as builder, uh, in the area of Nazareth. And you know, if you recall in scripture, they ask, what good can come out of Nazareth? And the answer is Jesus. But Nazareth was a very small town. It makes Indian River look quite big. Uh, There was really not much there. Uh, And and his family grew up there. His his father was a a very simple man. He was a carpenter, it tells us. But more or less, he probably worked with stone as well and, and other building materials. Um, it also politely tells us that Jesus was not the most human being the most uh, handsome human being you 've ever laid eyes on right he was relatively regular in that sense he didn't stand out and and that was really part of the problem with many people during his ministry is that they were expecting a king in the earthly sense you recall back in the Old Testament when they when God said they could have a king for themselves and they wanted to pick King Saul right because he just looked the part he was tall he was handsome had a had a strong jawline uh, he was a warrior uh, he was just a good looking guy And so they they chose a king in that sense. And that was kind of their mindset of what a king would look like. So during his ministry, they're expecting this grand entry, a guy who looked the part, acted the part, and their human understanding of a king. And so that's why in John chapter 1, verse 10, it makes so much sense. It says that the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And while the world did not know him, it goes even further. It tells us that he was despised and rejected by men in verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. It's pretty sad but also amazing to in the sense to think that he was rejected by the very people he came to save. And the Bible is very clear on this point. This is not the only place it tells us that he was despised or rejected. Uh, He was rejected by his family. He was rejected by his town. uh, By the religious leaders. He was rejected by the world. And crucified. And the truth of this runs parallel with John chapter 1 verse 11. Which says that he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Now let's pause for a moment on the next line here in chapter three of Isaiah fifty three. It's one that's often overlooked. Uh, Some of these verses may look familiar to you if you've heard them or read through uh, scripture before in Isaiah fifty three, but one that's often passed over is that second line in chapter or in verse three. It says that Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Now I read that, and it's interesting because a lot of us, when we're going through struggles, right, we kind of have this mindset of nobody understands what I'm going through, right? Nobody knows the, the agony and the stress and the depression that I'm feeling in this moment. But it says here that Jesus is a man of sorrows, and he knew what it was like to be grieved. And we have to understand that the depths of his sorrow and grief that he went through is far beyond any other thing that we could ever comprehend. He spent his entire life in perfect relationship with God the Father. And in that moment on the cross when he bore the sin and shame of the world upon his shoulders, that, that connection with his Father was broken. Right, And it says that God turned away from him and he, he cries out on the cross, my, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So you imagine that kind of grief. right? This perfect one-on-one connection with his Father throughout his entire ministry, throughout his life growing up, and all of a sudden it's completely severed of course that's not the only grief and sorrow that he experienced while he was here on earth he experienced everything that we as humans experience You know, he experienced the pains of hunger, of tiredness uh, of just being anxious it tells us that he sweat drops of blood before his crucifixion he was very stressed, very anxious about what was coming before him he experienced all the things that we experience as human beings but the fact that he experienced grief and sorrow so deep, it tells me that no matter how potentially deep our sorrow and pain is, that, that he's already been there. I and mean, that should be encouragement for us this morning. No matter where you've been or where you are, maybe you're in a current state of, of, of just a difficult time in your life, that his pain and his sorrow, he, he understands, he's been there. Which also tells me that he knows what we're going through. He's a man of sorrow. tells us and he is acquainted with grief. Further expounding on this incredible truth, uh, it's found in Psalm 34, verse 18. Encouraging words here. The, word is, or the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Why do you think that in the ministry of Jesus, wherever there was somebody hurting, somebody uh, in great need, that Jesus would go and minister to these people? Right, regardless of their social standing, right, it didn't matter where they stood or in the social st- class of the society that they were in. Regardless of their uncleanliness, right, the lepers and all the sick people alike who were cast off from the cities, he'd go and visit and meet them. Jesus reached out to these people, but why did he do that? It's because as Psalm 4, uh, 34 tells us he is near the brokenhearted and saves the crushed-in spirit. You know, he is our Messiah who understands sorrow and is acquainted with grief. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Love those verses. What it tells us is that Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses. Right? He's been everywhere. We have been. He knows how to minister to us. He can relate. So when you say, you know, no one understands me, there is someone who understands you. It's your Messiah and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's been there. He knows. And so there's an invitation that we now have where we can boldly approach his throne of grace. And this is the only, and this is only possible because he understands. And I, I really cannot state that enough this morning. Think about that. You know, when you, when you present your issues, your problems, your pain, and, and just lay them before the Lord, He doesn't say, I'm sorry, I can't relate. I don't know what that feels like. You know, I'm, I'm sorry for you. You know, I hope, I hope it works out. No, He understands where you've been. He understands where you're, where you're at currently. And He desires to minister to you there. It says that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. And so if you've been in a rut... Are stuck in a rut for a while now, I, I, I do pray that you find encouragement in God's word this morning as we read through this. That you can boldly come before the throne of grace and receive his mercy and help in time of need. It's so good to, to have that faith and that confidence to know that Jesus is there for you. That he sympathizes with you and he understands you and desires to help you. So earlier this week, or earlier we asked today, uh, why, why did Jesus come to earth? Right? Why did the creator enter into his creation in the form of man? And verse 5 of Isaiah 53 gives us the prophetic answer. We're going to look at verses 4 and 5 here. It says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds... We are healed. Notice what Jesus has done here. First off, it says he's borne our griefs, he's carried our sorrows, and he was wounded, but he wasn't wounded for his transgressions, right? He doesn't have any. He wasn't wounded for his own sin. He was wounded for our transgressions if you really want to make this message personal, this, this, this section of scripture personal, you say, Lord, you bore my grief, you've carried my sorrow, you were pierced for my transgressions, and you were crushed for my sin. And that's the answer, that's why Jesus came to earth, that's why Jesus went to the cross. He went to the cross for you, and he went to the cross for me. And it says that with his wounds we are healed. Jesus, the Bible describes, was whipped repeatedly. Yet through the suffering, the prophet Isaiah says that he en- what he endured was for our healing. Right? We, we were mortally wounded in the garden. right? When we sinned and we turned our backs on God as, as, as humans, we were mortally wounded. What I mean by that is not only did, were we now to experience physical death, but now we were also eternally separated from the love of God. Right? And there was no hope on our own accord to bridge that gap. And so it tells us that by his wounds we were healed. Again, we were, we were mortally wounded. There was nothing we could do. It, it took a miracle in order to save us. And that's what happened is that Jesus, through his suffering, endured. And the, the, what he endured was for our healing to bring us back to God. So if there's anything you're going to grasp today, it's, it's, this, it's this line here. Uh, I heard this. I can't remember where I heard it from, but it's always stuck with me. It says that Jesus was separated from the Father so we would never have to be. And you think about that sacrifice. Jesus was separated from the Father so that you would not have to be. Jesus took pain upon Him, himself that, he, that we could be made whole. Such an incredible sacrifice and in just display of, of the love of Jesus Christ for his people. Next in verse 6, it says that all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Quite often you're going to find in scripture as you read through it that uh, people are often related to or uh, likened to sheep. And I know I mentioned this kind of recently uh, so I won't go into full detail but We come to understand that sheep are rather helpless creatures. On their own, they tend to wander off, get stuck in thickets, eat clods of dirt, eat poisonous plants, fall off cliffs. They're they're not the uh, brightest animals. They're cute, but they're just not very smart. Um, That's not to say that we're not smart. (laughs) But apart from something, these sheep um, will wander off. They will get eaten. Uh, They don't have any hope on their own. So there's, there's one thing that's absolutely critical for the survival of sheep, and that's a shepherd. If you recall, Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And that's exactly what Jesus did. And that's exactly why he came to earth. It was a bunch of wandering sheep, and he brought them in, and he sacrificed himself. We needed a Savior. We turn from our own way, it tells us. We turn from God, and the wages of sin is death, it says in in the book of Romans, which is eternal separation from God. But Jesus came to earth, humble and lowly in stature, says that he bore our grief and our sorrow. The sin was upon his shoulders, and and it was his willing sacrifice that we now have the hope of eternity. So let's turn back now to John chapter 1. We're going to conclude the message this morning uh, in John chapter 1. But so far, we've, we've further discussed Jesus' as light of the world. He's the illumination of truth, giving sight in the darkness. We've also seen the purpose of his coming, and now we're going to look at what we receive from his coming. In John chapter 1, verse, starting in verse 11 now, it says, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Verse 11 says that he came to his own, yet his own did not receive him. Imagine for a moment... The creator, we know he's the creator of the universe, right? The creator of the world and he enters into his creation and yet his creation does not even recognize him. Would that happen to Leonardo da Vinci? You know, you think about, he enters into a room and there's, he's surrounded by his paintings. Everyone would say, hey, look, that's Leonardo da Vinci. You know, and everyone would welcome him in and, and just, it just praise him for his works and everything he has done. And yet it tells us that the creator of the world, of heaven and earth, entered into his creation. The very stuff that, the very creation that reveals his nature to the world and they did not recognize him. It just blows me away. But I know it's part of his plan as well. But this is very crucial for everyone, to under, for us to understand this morning, is is one of the aspects of this of this lesson right here. In verses 12 and 13, is that not everyone is a child of God? Not everyone is a child of God. We have to understand that this morning, you know. But but didn't God create everyone in His own image? Yeah, He did. Aren't we born with eternity placed on our hearts? Yes. So, so, so what makes someone a, a child of God while another person is not? And I think the answer is right there in verse 12. It says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he, he what? He gave the right to become children of God. And so that's the gift given to us this morning. The right to become children of God. And this gift is really, it's been laid at the feet of every individual who has graced this earth. Right? It's a, if you can imagine physically speaking, it's like a present that is handed to each and every individual, but not everyone will receive it. And what I mean by that is not everyone will accept the gift, right? Some will look at it and just lay it aside. Some may not even recognize it as a gift at all. And some will accept the gift. Paul puts it this way in Romans, what it means to be a child of God, in Romans verse, uh, chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. He says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. John Piper explains this furthermore. He says, in other words, if you become a child of God, you become an heir of all that God owns. All that belongs to God is your inheritance. In the resurrection, everything that exists will be yours, and God will care for you forever and make you infinitely happy in his presence. What a wonderful blessing, right? What a wonderful gift that we've been given through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's the true gift of the birth of Jesus is fully revealed in the well-known verse of John 3.16. Right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, eternally speaking, but have eternal life. You know how long eternal is? <laughs> That's forever. In the presence of God. Something we did not have on our own accord, but was needed a pure and perfect sacrifice on our behalf. It's also further explained in the books of Ephesians, Titus, John, and Romans. And I'll read a, just real quickly, I'm just going to run through these. Ephesians eight or two verses eight and nine, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing; it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's a gift, only through Jesus Christ. Titus two or Titus three, verse five. I'm having enough trouble with my numbers today. Uh, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Again, not by works, regardless if they're done in righteousness or not. We're not saved that way. John 5, verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. The words of Jesus, He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Zoe, spiritual spiritual life. And then Romans six twenty three: For the wages of sin is death. Romans also tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus our Lord. The word used here for free gift is the Greek word charisma. And it's defined as favor with which one receives without any merit of his own. One of divine grace. I love that definition. That's what the free gift is. It's a, it's a gift that we received without any merit on our own. Meaning, we don't deserve it. We, we far from deserve it. And yet it's handed to us. It's one of divine grace. And so this is what John uh, is also confirming in his book, uh, in chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he, was give, he has given the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So it's through his coming, it's through his sacrifice, that those who believe in him and receive him have the right to become children of God. So it's important for us to understand this this morning, that salvation is obtained only through faith in Jesus Christ. That's why we celebrate Christmas, and that's why we remember the birth of Jesus, Right? Because without the, without the cross and without the resurrection, it's just an incredible birth of somebody. <laughs> but there's no reason to celebrate it. It's the entire story of itself. But this is the, the beginning of his earthly ministry as it would be. But salvation is obtained only through faith in Jesus Christ. Again, if we could be our own saviors, there's no need for Jesus. There's no reason to celebrate and worship him. Right? We could just worship ourselves. If we could save ourselves on our own merit but we cannot. Apart from Jesus, we're without hope, and apart from Jesus, we're left to our own destruction and demise. Furthermore, this gift, the becoming a a child of God, has two conditions. The first is receiving Jesus. Receiving Jesus means that you receive all of Jesus, right? Not just the parts that that you like, (laughs) not just part of the word that, that tickles your ear, All of it. Again, I I love John Piper's explanation here, so I'm going to use it again. He says, If he comes to you as Savior, you welcome his salvation. If he comes to you as leader, you welcome his leadership. If he comes to you as provider, you welcome his provision. If he comes to you as a counselor, you welcome his counsel. If he comes to you as protector, you welcome his protection. If he comes to you as authority, you welcome his authority. And if he comes to you as king, you welcome his rule. Receiving Jesus means taking Jesus into your life for what he is. It does not mean a kind of peaceful coexistence with a Christ who makes no claims. So it's very important to understand that when you receive Jesus, you receive everything. And it means that you live a new life in him. You may recall in the book of Luke chapter 4 when Jesus begins his ministry that he taught in the synagogues and it tells us that he was glorified by all in verse 14. But then, in verse 22, or then in verse 22, it tells us that and all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words that they were coming from his mouth. So, things are going well. He's speaking into the, in, at the temples and they marvel at him. Uh, they, they speak graciously about him. Uh, they glorify him. But just six short verses later, it tells us that the crowd was filled with wrath and they attempted to throw him down a cliff. Just six verses later, everything just turned on a point. They were willing to receive his kind words, but as soon as he pointed towards their pride, they rejected him. Right? They were willing to receive the good things he had to say, but as soon as he pointed to the truth of their demise and their destruction and them and needing a savior, they didn't want anything to do with him. So it's important that when we receive Jesus, we're receiving everything about him. Again, it does not mean a kind of peaceful coexistence with Christ who makes no claims. Receiving Jesus means taking him into your life, Your home, your school, your work, your marriage, your dreams. But taking him for who he really is. Receiving Jesus is the first condition. The second is believing in his name. Now what does believing in the name of Jesus mean? There's a further explanation found a little later in John's gospel in in chapter 3 verse 18. Jesus says that whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So here, believing in him and believing in his name, they're, they're used interchangeably. Uh, the name, the word name, simply emphasizes the full stature and dignity and authority of the person. Next in John chapter 5, we'll see the, the words receive and believe are used once more in close connection. He says, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes only from God? So do you see the implication of verse 44? We say, essentially it's saying that you are unable to believe in me if you love the praise, praises and glory of man. So this means that believing involves a deep humbling, right? It is the antithesis of pride and self-exaltation. It means abandoning the craving for human praise and caring more about the praise of God. And also it's important to understand that believing is not merely intellectual assent to the truth that Jesus is the Son of God. It's a matter of that knowledge also penetrating into the heart. John, chapter 6, verse 35, it says that Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So what this verse teaches us is that believing in Jesus also means being satisfied with Jesus. The truth of the matter is Jesus is all we need, right? He's all we need. Our flesh will lead us to the desires of this world, promising satisfaction there but it's a false satisfaction that's found in this world, right? It might be something that satisfies for a time, but eventually that satisfaction will dry up. And so the, the satisfaction that this world promises is false satisfaction. Essentially, it's a, it's a wolf in sheep's clothing. But truly believing in Jesus is saying that he is enough through the life that we live. So the question for you guys this morning is, is Jesus enough for you? Do you seek the pleasures and promises of this world for satisfaction or is the promise of Jesus enough? And before you really truly answer that question, it's important to look at your actions and the choices you make because that will be a very telling answer to this question. But my hope and prayer is that if we are seeking the pleasures and promises of this world that we would understand and recognize Jesus is more than enough is in fact all that we need, and I did share this this uh, a couple days ago at Calvin School. I got the opportunity to share it their chapel service, and uh, you know I just shared about uh, just the gifts that we receive on Christmas, and you know I kind of asked the kids, yeah, you know, what, what are your favorite gifts you've ever received? And uh, I shared, but mine, the most memorable gift I've ever received on Christmas was a was this bright, shiny, beautiful electric guitar, nice red electric guitar, first guitar I ever received. Um, but I said all all these gifts that we receive all those wonderful gifts as a kid you know all these things they eventually you know go away we grow out of them we forget about them they break but there's one gift I said Jesus is is the greatest gift of all just for the simple reason that he is the only gift that we actually need right? All these other gifts that we receive, whether it's the, even just the other blessings that God has given us, other provisions he's given us, family, friends, loved ones, uh, you know, a church to call home, whatever it is that are wonderful things, the one thing that we truly need, the only gift we truly need is Jesus Christ. And so it's important that we remember that as, we, as if we're tempted by the offerings of this world, tempted by um, the promises that it brings that essentially they're going to fall short. That the only thing that is more than enough for us is Jesus Christ. So as we close this morning, it's good to be reminded of the gift that we have each been given. Again, it's, it's a gift of humble beginnings. It's a gift that wasn't wrapped in the royal robes of a king, but came wrapped in cloth, surrounded by animals, laying in a feeding trough filled with hay. It's a gift that was acquainted with grief and sorrow throughout his life on earth. It's a gift that was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our sins. It's a gift that is complete love, grace, and mercy. It's a gift that is the ultimate display of selflessness. But it's also a gift that not everyone will accept. In fact, many will not even recognize the gift for what it truly is. Others will simply deny the gift altogether, believing they have something better. But the gift of Jesus Christ cannot be overstated because it's through his rejection that we have now been accepted by God. And it's through him that we can now walk in the light of new life and become children of God. It's because of him that we can now boldly approach the throne of grace and lay our troubles before the Lord. And it's because of him that we now have a Lord that understands and can sympathize with our struggles. And so that's why we celebrate Christmas. For all those reasons and many more that I'll never be able to fully list here in my finite knowledge of an infinite God and King. And so that is my prayer this morning, guys, that you would be encouraged by his word. If you are struggling through a time in your life and a chapter in your life, to know that you have a Lord and a Savior that sympathizes with what you're going through. He understands the very depths of the pain that you are feeling and desires to seek you and help you out. To hold you through this moment in time. In fact that Jesus is, is all we all we ever truly need, it's something we don 't deserve, but we do need it and he has been, He's given himself to us this morning let 's pray, heavenly Father, we just thank you again for this Christmas season, and as believers in Christ, what that means to us, what it represents is your birth and Lord, I know we have these these beautiful nativity scenes that display your birth, Lord, but in reality you were born in a cave, surrounded by animals, in a dark, dingy, wet cave very humbly, unknown to most of the world, save for a few shepherds and some wise men, Lord but you came humbly, but you came with a purpose Father, and I thank you that you saw that purpose through even in the midst of of experiencing human fear you said, not my will, but your will be done Lord, we thank you for that sacrifice that you looked upon the people who had turned their back on you, the very people who hated and despised you and you said you were worth it. Father, I just pray that during this time, this holiday season, as we enjoy the, the gifts and the, of giving and receiving, of fellowship with family and friends, and all those wonderful things that are a part of the Christmas season that ultimately all these gifts that we receive will remind us of the gift that you have given in yourself. And Lord, I just pray that we would just be, just just fall into our knees in humble adoration of what you have done for us. That the creator of earth entered into earth in the form of mankind and sacrificed yourself for us. Even though we turned our back on you, it's such a humbling thing to understand, Lord. And I just pray that those who are struggling, that they would understand and know and trust in you as someone who sympathizes in their hurts and in their pain and in their hardships and know that they can lay these troubles before the throne of Jesus Christ and that you desire to help. And Lord, I just pray for this week moving forward as as Christmas is quickly drawing near. I just pray for those families traveling, that you would just grant them safety. But I also pray for the opportunity as we are around family, perhaps there's many family members who don't know Jesus, that we would just simply be a light that shines in the darkness. That we would just be ultimate reflections of you and that your glory would be revealed to these people. I, just prepare, I pray that you begin to prepare to soften their hearts to the truth and to the knowledge of you. In the name we pray. Amen.